Hi, I'm Diane Hullett, and welcome to the Best Life, Best Death podcast. Today, I've got a special guest who's a journalist and an author, Rachel Brome. Welcome, Rachel. Hi. I got introduced to Rachel because my dad sent me an article from the Petoskey News Review column, actually, right? Column rather than article. And um, Rachel was talking about grief. And I really loved the way the column was written. And I kind of followed through. I said, well, wait a minute, I'm going to look this person up. Rachel now lives in Minneapolis. She's written an incredible book called Widowland. And she's here today to talk about her story and also kind of some pieces about what matters when people are grieving, how we can be helpful, um, what we can do to both sort of get ourselves through it and help others get through it. So welcome, Rachel. Oh, thanks, Diane. Um, tell us about, you know, tell us about your, your story and what has brought you to be a writer and um, what happened that changed your life. Sure. Well, I am one of those few people that grew up knowing that I was going to be a writer of some kind. And uh, I come from the world of journalism. So I worked in television and newspapers. And now I work as a freelance writer. Um, most of my career was spent in northern Michigan. And then we moved to Minneapolis um, for my husband Colin's job in 2015. Um, our son had just finished kindergarten. It was a great time to leave if we were going to leave. Uh, we fell in love with Minneapolis. And uh, Colin was a bike commuter. He developed a love of cycling when we moved to Minneapolis. And he rode about, I don't know, it was like 15 miles to work every day, most days. And um, he was hit and killed by the light rail, which is the commuter train here in Minneapolis. And uh, it happened on his way home from work, just maybe five blocks from our house. Wow. Um, while I was getting dinner ready. Yeah. And that's what uh, kind of gave me the jump I needed to write a book about my experiences as a widow. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what I, what I think is really interesting about your book is instead of it being kind of a, a narrative, that's kind of a straight direct, you know, uh, linear story about what happened or you're in Colin's life. It's much more journalistic feeling and it bounces kind of um, each chapter kind of bounces to different places. Some are memories, some are present time, some are what happened that day, and some are letters to Colin. And um, it's, it's just got this really moving quality to it. I loved reading it. I highly recommend it. And, um, you know, Rachel has her experience and then she takes that experience and really helps us see how her experience is a universal experience. Although we were just talking before we hit record how also every death is just so different. It's just the people around it and how the person dies and um, they're just incomparable, whether it's a sudden death or a long expected death, everyone is so different. So you you talk about, I love this chapter. You You have a chapter called, things you should never say. And you've got this list at the beginning of things that people said to you. And um, I thought I'd just read a few of them. And then you kind of, you know, tell us your experience of this. You're so young and beautiful. Don't worry. You'll find love again. We can only hope he's in a better place. Have you ever wondered if he did it on purpose? I went through a divorce, so I understand loss. I know how you feel. My cat died and I was a wreck for a week. Everyone dies. It's just hard for you because you're so young. 
And did you tell him to be careful when he rode his bike? So, you know, I think people are, are often well-meaning and stumble over themselves, but tell us a little about some of those things and how they landed. Oh, I mean, when you read them as a list, I just wanted to cringe. Um, so that first one, the, uh, there was a woman at Colin's funeral who came up to me afterward and said, you know, you're so young and beautiful. Don't worry. You're going to find love again. And I was just, that's one of the very few things I actually remember about Colin's funeral. And it just was like, wow, I didn't ask for that, but okay. Thank you. Like, you know, what do you say? Thank you. What do you say? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think a lot of those are platitudes that we tell people who are grieving. And I think there's two reasons for that. Um, one, we've heard them before, you know, he's in a better place or, you know, God will only get you as much as you can handle or, you know, we hear those platitudes and we think that, okay, well, they must be the right things to say because we've heard them over and over throughout our lives. Um, I think that when people say those things, they're not, they're not bad people. They just don't know what to say. Yes. I think there's sometimes a kind of stumbling over, well, let me say something. Let me say something. Um, I think there's another aspect to that in that people, as people, we just want those around us to be happy because when everyone around us is happy, we are happy. So we say things like that to try to make others feel good. But really what we're doing is we're diminishing their feelings. We're diminishing the grief that they feel. You talk about how the answer is often when someone says, how are you? You say, I'm fine. But but inside you're like doing this mental dance of like, how much do I want to say to this person in this moment? And what is, what's my real genuine response to this? Um, What do I'm trying to think about? I'm trying to think about when early on after Colin's death, I would say I'm fine because either the person who was asking really didn't want to hear the answer. And I knew that. Or how much did I want to talk about it at that moment? Right, right. So I would just go to, well, I'm fine. Right. I mean, how are you is kind of the wrong question. Probably there's maybe a different phrase. Right, right. And I don't know exactly what that'd be. I think it depends on the person. But, you know, um, maybe how are you doing today? Uh, Yes. You know, or I've been thinking of you a lot with all you've been going through. Something right. something a little bit less asking of the person to respond with the depth of what's happening for them. Right. Now, how, how are you? Well, let's ask about how all your grief is today, you know, and maybe they don't want to talk about that. Right, right. Right. What about this one about, um, do you think he did it on purpose? Yeah, that's um, that's a question that, I only remember being asked of me once. However, I have a lot of friends who were close to Colin who have been asked that. So I know it's a question that people ask. And, um, you know, I I don't really know how I feel about it. I feel like it's kind of a nosy question, but I know that as humans, we're kind of nosy sometimes. Um, I guess it's like, it's, you know, what I was struck by, you say so clearly at some point in the book, you talk about, you know, accidents happen. Like that's why they're called accidents. And I think we don't, we don't like accidents. So we want to find some control. I think saying, you know, could it have been on purpose is 
some way to grasp control from a terrible accident. Right, right. And, uh, you know, I, I know it was an accident because there's a lot of factors, but I, I read the police report, you know, I read witness statements. I know it's an accident, but not everyone knows that, knows all those details. And I think you're right. People don't want to think about, oh, this could happen to me. This could happen to someone I love. Right. So um, I think asking if he did it on purpose is a great way to dismiss and like kind of shove those feelings of fear that you might have of it happening to you. Yes. Um, yes. I think that's exactly right. And what about the one about um, this? Do you, did you tell him to be careful? You know, <laughs> I told him to be careful every day. <laughs> yeah. So my last text message to him was actually be careful. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if, you know, maybe I didn't tell him that enough. Like if it would have helped something, like, I don't know why that's a question. Did I tell right. him to be careful? Right. Right. Does that matter in the case of well, my wife didn't tell me to be careful today, so I'm not going to be. <laughs> right. So I did something reckless. Yeah. You, you have a great chapter, another chapter called I am not brave. And you talk so eloquently about people you believe are brave. You know, the, the first responders who run into a building, um, you know, someone who signs up for the military, um, you know, they're an activist stepping forward in some way there, you say, these are brave people. I'm not brave, but you say people like me, those who are grieving aren't necessarily brave. We're just people who have been dealt a heavy pile of shit to deal with. Every morning we must wake up, relive a nightmare and go on about our lives, a reality we never signed up for. We have no other options, no other choices, no alternatives. We just have to make the most of what we have been given. I cry, I laugh, I smile, I stare out the window and I go on. I guess you could say that strength, but strength is not the same as being brave. I am not brave. Yeah. Um, I think brave, being brave includes a choice. You have to make a choice. Um, firefighters make a choice to go into a burning building to save people. I don't see myself ever making that choice. Um, I, you know, my son was nine. So I, I had to get up every morning. I had to get him to school. I had to feed him. I had to get groceries. I had to do all the things around the house now on my own. Um, that's just flat out sucked. It's not being brave. It's just kind of facing my reality like carrying on with strength yeah, and trying to find the strength in myself to go on with my life and figure out what that was going to be moving forward. Yeah. 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 I love that distinction. I think that's really strong. Another one of my favorite pieces is a chapter called they're not just things. Tell us, tell us more about that. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not one to keep a lot of sentimental things around. I don't like clutter. But when Colin died, I found myself really holding on to things that we had together or things that were his because it's just one more thing that gave me some connection to him. And I think when your person dies, you look for any connection that you can to keep them kind of going 
And so he, uh, we were on spring break a week before he died and he got this tube of chapstick from a brewery in North Carolina. And I remember a day or two after he died, I saw it on his nightstand and I remember wiping some of it across my mouth and knowing that I was wiping his DNA on me. And I had this moment where, you know, I didn't want another child. Like we had talked about having another child and we had decided not to. And uh, I remember thinking at that moment, I wish science were was further along so I could harvest some kind of DNA of his and make a baby, even though I didn't want a baby. From the chapstick, I'll get more DNA, yeah. I just wanted something to keep him going. And um, so, you know, I remember one day, somewhat recently, I opened up the dishwasher and there was a broken cereal bowl. And it was a bowl that part of our wedding set that he used to eat out of. And I cried about it. You know, I could replace it, but it's not the same. Um, so I, I talk about things in there that I know I will have to replace someday, like our toaster that we got as a wedding gift. I don't even know who got it for us. But I think about all the slices of bread and English muffins and everything that's been shoved in those slots by him over the years. And at some point that toaster is going to end up in the trash. Right. At some point it will stop working. You say, you say in the book, you say, sure, it's just a toaster and I'll replace it when it finally toasts that last piece of bread. But that's not to say I won't be sad about it. Sometimes grief makes you weird about certain things. And you go on to say so many things are just things until that special person attached to them is no longer there. And it's the same reason it's hard to part with books or pieces of clothing. Um, And then the very last part of the chapter, you say, I suppose I could call up the the brewery in Asheville and ask if they still sell those little tubes of chapstick. I can replace the cereal bowl that broke and I'll get a new toaster someday. I can get new things, except that misses the point. Replacements weren't used by someone I love. They don't carry the same memories, the same stories, the same weight. Replacement things would just be things. Yeah. Yep. Well, Rachel, I really appreciate that you um, took the time to, as a writer, kind of not only experience all that you've gone through, but digest it and then put it in this incredible book that I, I think is, again, both a beautiful telling of your experience, but also then a real resource and a, um, almost like a mirror for people going through a similar thing or people who want to better understand what friends or family are going through. Right. I did write it. Um, as a way to bring up a lot of little things that I didn't feel like other memoirs on widowhood kind of talked about that I yes. experienced. Yes, I love that. That's a really good way to put it, that your book kind of grapples with and, and supports the thinking about the little things and the daily things. Like I really got a feeling for your day-to-day life with Colin and without Colin. Yeah. And I also thought it was important to talk about how to better support people, you know, for those who are grief adjacent yeah. to um, just be better support, a better supporter. Yeah. What, what last things would you say about that? You know, I, I have a great support system in place and I feel like I was very surprised by those who are great supporters and extremely disappointed by people who have been in my life for a long time who are not good supporters. I 
what made the difference? What's support versus not support? I feel like the great supporters continue to show up and it, it didn't have to be big things. It didn't have to be um, bringing food over every week or any of that, but I still get text messages from people who maybe I worked with years ago who reach out every now and then and say, Hey, I'm thinking about you. Um, you know, wondered when you're going to be back in town. Can we have lunch? I'd love to buy you a beer or whatever. And then, you know, I had family members who maybe came to the funeral or they sent a card and I haven't heard from them since. And it's, it's just really shocking. And I don't necessarily think they're bad people for not showing up. They just don't know what to do. Right. Right. I think sometimes it's people's own massive levels of discomfort that they fall off. Right. Or they think, Oh, she's doing okay. She's doing great. She doesn't need me. Right. But you know, when you're grieving, you can't, you don't, you don't have it in you to better instruct people how to do better. You don't want to be that person. So I thought, you know what, if I write a book, I'm going to include some simple things that people can do to just be a better supporter. I love that you, you talked about like, don't, don't, don't ask, like my brain is in a fog and I can't make a list for you, but if you show up and mow my lawn, I'll be thrilled. If you oh, yeah. ask my kid to school, I'll be thrilled. Like just, just kind of make yourself helpful in whatever way you can serve the situation. Right. Think about what you're willing to do. Don't yes, say, that's good too. let me know what you need because I did not know what I needed. Yeah. Yeah. But when people showed up to shovel my sidewalk or help mow the lawn or drop off a bag of just simple groceries like bread and milk and cereal, that was the best. That so was the absolute best. Well, yeah. thank you so much, Rachel. I, 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 yeah, I'm just speechless at your experience and, and what you went through and your son went through. And um, I think your book is a great addition to the sort of grief literature that's out there, whatever you would call this genre. Um, Widowland is the name of the book. And Rachel's name is Rachel Brome, spelled B-R-O-U-G-H-A-M. And you can find her book at rachelbrome.com. And that will take you to Black Hat Press. And if I can help get this book on Amazon, I will be doing so because I just think it should be so accessible to people. Oh, thanks, Diane. Anything else you want to add for people? I don't think so. All right. Thanks so much. It's been great to talk to you. I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, thank you. Well, thanks so much to Rachel Brome. You've been listening to the Best Life, Best Death podcast. You can find out more about my work at bestlifebestdeath.com. And again, you can find out about Rachel's book, Widowland at rachelbrome.com. That's R-A-C-H-E-L-B-R-O-U-G-H-A-M.com. A lot of silent letters in that wonderful last name. Thanks so much. Thank you.